Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 283 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is John Crowley. He's the author of novels such as Engine Summer, The Egypt Sequence, and Lord Byron's novel. And his book, Little Big, is one of the most widely admired fantasy novels of the past few decades. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new novel, Ka, Dar Oakley in the Ruins of Emer, about a crow who finds himself reincarnated throughout history. I also want to mention that during this interview, John mentioned several books that he read while researching Ka. And if you want the exact titles and authors of those books, I'll be listing them for you after the interview. And now, here's our interview with John Crowley. All right, so we're here with John Crowley. Welcome to the show. Very happy to be here. Wired is a magazine that I've always uh, enjoyed looking at. <laughs> okay, so your new book is called Ka, Dar Oakley in the Ruins of Emer. So how'd this book come about? Uh, well, it's a little hard to describe how any book comes about, but uh, um, I cared about crows and thought about crows and enjoyed thinking about crows for many, many years. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I read a wonderful book by a writer named Alan DeVoe, now long forgotten, but he was a nature writer in the 1940s. And I learned from him that how smart crows are and that crows uh, can tell the difference between a man carrying a shovel uh, over his shoulder and a man carrying a gun. And they know to stay away from the one and the other one can't hurt them. I thought that was pretty remarkable. And then, of course, there's my name, <laughs> which happens to have a, a crow in it. Um, so both of those things tend me toward crowhood and crowdom in a big way. I had thought about writing a book about crows for a long time without actually being able to conceive how I would do it. All I thought of was a bunch of crows in the city, kind of like a gang of pirates or bandits somehow getting in squabbles with each other and making alliances and doing stuff. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And so when I finally decided, okay, it's time to start on this, most of the ideas I have for books begin some 10 years before I actually sit down and work, start working on them. Uh, I had to think of a framework that would hold enough amusement and entertainment for a book. And uh, so I started thinking about crows and death. I had just read a wonderful book called The Dominion of the Dead. Um, I can give you the uh, the name of the author. I can see the book, but I can't read the title, and I can't <laughs> put it on the phone to get it. But it's a wonderful book about burial and death and what death means and what, how people, why people get buried and what their uh, funerals mean to us. So I was thinking a lot about the dead, and uh, the two things just came together to make this book. And how about the idea that this was going to take place over a thousand years or so? Um, I, you know, I can't tell you <laughs> at what point in my thinking this really, this really uh, came to me, that, that, that Dar Oakley the Crow would die and be born again and die and be born again. I think probably it came about because I thought of him going after this uh, key to immortality with a human person, and that he would get it and not the human. But then I thought, not what, you know. Hmm. Uh, so I decided he'd sort of get it and then lose it, but it would still affect him in a certain way. So that even though he dies, he keeps coming back, which is a different kind of immortality, I guess. 
I mean, did you always know what the different time periods were going to be, or did you discard some and add others over as you were writing? Or no, actually, I didn't. I didn't have any alternatives, really. It's funny to think that since it's obviously so episodic. I knew it was going to be episodes. I knew that, and in fact, I kind of had the idea that there would be twelve. Uh, they don't quite count out that way now, but uh, I thought it would be an episodic, almost picaresque kind of novel with a hero who goes through various adventures over time. And um, as uh, I was working, I said, all right, I have 12 time periods. When are they going to be? And things would come up that I would consider. You know, I knew it was going to be a Celtic world. Where, where does the Celtic world end up? It ends up in Christianity 500 years later. And if that's the case, then you, you go to, with St. Brendan across the ocean to North America. Once there, he's got a North American life to live with uh, Native Americans. And then what? Well, then white people come. It just it kind of accumulated pretty naturally. Oh, and the other book that I was reading at the time was um, a book about the dead in the Civil War. Uh, it was written by the uh, former president of Harvard, a woman. His name I can't remember also. Um <laughs> And it was an amazing book about how what people at the time thought about the people who had died and how they imagined them as dead people and what they thought of the other world that they thought they believed, all of them believed people went to. And I read also a book about spiritualism and uh, mediumship and uh, all of that, which was very big at the time, partly as a result of all of you who had died during the Civil War. Now, the other thing is, I'm not sure when I came up with the idea that all of this would somehow be told through the medium of one human being who takes in the crow and nurses him back to health. I can't tell you how that arose either. So maybe I'm sort of an uh, unconscious writer. <laughs> I don't know. Were you um, apprehensive at all about trying to write such an epic story from the point of view of a crow? Is that a challenge? Uh it was a challenge to make it convincing and and rich. Yes, I never thought that I would fail. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, I don't think that when I write books. I think I'm going to be a huge success. <laughs> uh, sometimes I am, and sometimes I'm not, in the view of other people. But uh, I tend to have a kind of uh, crazy confidence in the ideas that I get, and that I can bring them off. Uh, so uh, that wasn't that wasn't so much the problem. I did come upon lots of um, you might call practical problems. How is he going to communicate with human beings? I didn't want him to just talk to humans as in a sort of talking animal fantasy. I wanted it to be more realistic in some way than that, even though it isn't really realistic. Um, so I conceived the idea that in various times and places, various human beings would learn to talk to him in the way that he is described as learning to talk to Foxcap in the very beginning of the book. That is to say, the human speaks in human words, and the crow speaks in crow words, and each of them learns the other's language. And I said, well, that'll do. And uh, so I wanted to avoid the trap of the talking animal book, basically, where um, animals in the stories are basically human beings dressed up as animals, in effect. They have some animal problems to deal with, specific specific to their to their type and their situation. But basically, they're human beings, and I wanted them not to be that way. 
if I can avoid it. Right. And all these, these human characters are all mystics of some sort or another, and they're kind of halfway between our world and the spirit world. So it kind of makes sense for them to be able to communicate in some sort of supernatural kind of way. Yes, that's right, that they are all that way. I mean, I'm not sure that all human beings aren't that way. But these <laughs> are the, the ones that I picked have a job to do, that is to say, in, in the world of the dead and the world of story. So, uh, yes, and it would be unlikely, I suppose, that the crow would just happen to find himself with such people, but he does seek them out. In the, in the section with the monk in it, it's he who uh, seeks out the monks, not the other way around. And in the Native American sequence, too, he is the one who starts following around this uh, tale teller who ends up telling or retelling in his own fashion Dar Oakley's life and story. Yeah, and, so, and I feel like I learned a lot about crows from reading this book. <laughs> um, and could you say, like, because obviously the crows talk to each other, so, I mean, it's, it's maybe, you know, it's, it's fictionalized somewhat, but how, how accurate is the idea of crow interactions that you get from this book? I have a feeling that crows don't talk to each other. That is to say, they don't have a, they don't have a language of words that represent things in the world. I don't think they do. I think they're very yakety and they talk a lot, but we don't hear, or I don't hear. I've never, I haven't been close enough to crows to actually listen to see if they are making noises, you know, that are different from their cawing, calling, and crying out and yelling, which is the language of crows that we can hear. I don't know if they have a way of communication that's like, you know, different from that. Um, parent birds, all parent birds talk to their young in a kind of quieter way, I think. Um, or at least that's my assumption. But I don't think they talk in the way that human beings... I don't think anybody talks to uh, others of their kind except human beings. Right, I mean, but you talk about how, for example, if one crow is in danger, they'll send out some special cry and all the crows that's, in the well, area will... That's absolutely so. Yes, all that. All the, the actual, besides the language stuff of talking to each other and like people, uh, all of the crow, um, crow behavior is, I've studied it, and it is fairly accurate, as accurate as I could make it. So, um, yeah, that, that I, I, I worked hard on that. And uh, I actually tried to get some... Uh, interest from a couple of different uh, experts in crow life, crows and ravens, and whose books I'd read. And uh, I tried to get hold of them and say, would you like to read this crazy book I wrote about a talking crow? <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I shouldn't be surprised they didn't answer. I don't know, but they didn't. So I'm, there may be errors in it as far as the latest crow um, studies go, but it has been shown. I don't know if you have been watching and and reading about it, but they have proved amazing things about crow intelligence. Crows are, without a doubt, the smartest uh, beings, animals, uh, for their brain size, brain-to-body ratio of anybody, in the, of anybody else, even, even the great apes, even parrots, who are famous for being smart. Yeah, I, the smartest. I just saw this headline recently where it was something like crows had to get a treat by pulling on a string to pull it out of the thing. And then like some of the crows would learn how to do it and then they would explain to the other crows yeah, somehow how to do right. it. Yeah, that's right. 
That's right. And the other thing they proved, which astonished them, is Indonesian crows, which are somehow especially smart, can do a two-step problem. That is to say, in order to get the string, you have to do another task in order to get the string. So you solve the problem first of getting the string, then you use the string to get the food. And they can figure that out, which is really uh, kind of sensational. But they also, they, they are enormously inventive in their own behaviors that nobody has taught them to do. There was there are crows in, I can't remember, this might be Japan, I'm not certain where this is, but they... Uh, like to eat a certain kind of nut that has a hard shell. And what they have learned to do, they, these tr tr nut trees grow along a road or a street, and the nuts fall on the ground. The crow picks up a nut, takes it to the middle of the road, sets it down, and rushes back out of the way and waits for a car to, to hmm. drive over the nut. And then he goes out and eats the, eats the meat. But this is risky, you know, because he can get run over while he's sitting there eating it. What they have figured out is that if the light is red 100 yards down the road, crows can see four, time, four times farther and three times sharper than we can. <laughs> they can see this light, red light down the road. So when the light turns red, they rush out, put the nut down, come back. Light turns green, car, car drives over the nut. They go then they wait till the, till the uh, light turns red again so they know it's safe to go out and eat the nut. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's really impressive, yeah. So <laughs> it is. I mean, what would you say were some of the best resources uh, that you found about crows? Um, well, the, the one that I I started with is Bernd Heinrich, who is wrote, wrote the great book about uh, in the uh, crows and ravens. Um, hold on, just one second. No, I put away all my crow books in the attic. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so, but Bernd Heinrich is is the the great uh, expert in crows and ravens, and his book was was uh, enormously popular uh, because it was so um, personal. I mean, he's more of a raven guy than a crow guy, but I learned a lot about crows from his book. Another one was a guy named uh, Marzluff, M A R Z L U F F, who was in Seattle. And he and another guy, whose name I can't remember, wrote a book called In the Company of Crows and Ravens. And he learned an enormous amount about, about crows and their ability to, to uh, uh, recognize human beings, for one thing. Um, there are studies that he did that, that are quite remarkable. He put on a you know, uh, sort of a scary mask and climbed up a tree while uh, crows were raising young in a nest. And the crows were furious, of course, and drove them off and drove them off and drove them. Finally, you know, so that he'd go, then he would go back down to the street and take the mask off. And uh, months later, he could go up in the tree with the same mask on and they'd drive him off again. Or walk down the street and they would mob him from the air. They'd recognize that face that he wore. Wow. I wonder if you should have just uh, sent these guys to your book and just not told them about the reincarnation stuff. Just say, I've written a book about crows. Would you like to take a look at it? And... <laughs> I didn't. All I did was say, well, actually, yes, I admitted that it was a sort of a fantasy. So uh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but they may pick it up if, 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 it, if its reputation grows sufficiently. They may, they may want to pick it up. I have a feeling they would instinctively you know, stay away from it. Mm. You know. I mean, I don't think rabbit experts ever picked up Watership Down. 
So his 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 uh, animal uh, descriptions of their lives and the way they interacted and so on were apparently highly researched also. It was funny because yesterday my mom was asking me, she said she has a friend of a friend who's a huge, she's really, really into crows, and would she like this book? And I said, oh, I, I think so, but um, it depends on how she feels about reading detailed descriptions of crows eating people's faces. <laughs> Yes, I remember when I first was talking about it to my uh, former editor at uh, HarperCollins about this idea. Um, and she had loved my previous novel, Four Freedoms. Partly she uh, she uh, particularly liked the way I wrote about sex in that one. And uh, so I was telling her about this book. She's going to be about crows. I said, yeah, crows. I think that's really interesting. Crows? She said, crow sex? I said, yes. <laughs> she made this ew <laughs> face. <laughs> and uh, I knew then that probably I didn't have a sale there. <laughs> uh, well, actually, you ended up selling this book to Joe Monty, who's a friend of the show. You want to talk a little bit about yeah, what was the process of getting sure. it published? Um, I had changed agents uh, before I started trying to sell this book. Um, my agent now is Howard Morhang. And Howard thought it was a great book and thought he would have little trouble uh, selling it. But he had a huge trouble selling it. Um, many editors loved it. Uh, some names you'd know, uh, I'm sure, but they couldn't get publishers to buy it. Publishers were saying, wow, a book about a crow? I don't think so. And they just couldn't convince their publishers to buy it. He went through like 20 editors. Most of some of them just said no, but some, many of them said yes. I'd love to, but I can't. And I guess Joe has sufficient clout within Simon and Schuster with his own imprint that um, he was able to, to 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 do it. And even he said, "I want to buy this very much. I'm going to try very hard." And even he took it. It took some talking, I guess, to uh, to sell it to the publishers. I think Joe is wonderful. I think he's great. I think his imprint is is terrific. Uh, the books that he that he publishes are extremely attractive and interesting and unusual. And, I mean, I guess he publishes some fairly standard uh, uh, science fiction and fantasy, but most of the titles I've noticed look really intriguing. Yeah, just for listeners, it's called Saga. It's an imprint of Simon and Schuster. Saga, yes, that's right. And it's within Simon and Schuster, which I think is. I mean, must be a great position to be in, actually, because, you know, you're running your own shop and with very small number of people, like two, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, within that, you got the resources of Simon, Simon and Schuster all around you to, to uh, take on all the rest of it, or much of the rest of it, anyway. At least that's how I see it. I might be all wrong about that. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that you had so much trouble selling the book, because you said that you conceived it to be a more popular kind of book than some of your previous ones? Uh, not, well, I wouldn't say that exactly. I guess so. I, 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 what I hope, here's what I thought. The last two or three books that I've written, there's one about an aircraft plant in the Second World War called Four Freedoms. Before that, I wrote uh, a book about Lord Byron and his lost novel, which is recovered by these two people in the 20th century. And before that, I wrote the translator, which was set in the 1950s in a in a uh, college in the Midwest, and none of these sold very well at all. But they 
were completely ignored by the people who loved my earlier fantasy work. So um, it, it occurred to me that I would like to write a book that would win back that fantasy audience. Uh, since I seem not to have been a huge success anyway in winning back any other winning any other <laughs> kind of audience, so I knew these people would would if I would uh, write a book that would touch them in some way or appeal to them, uh, that I would probably uh, get a, a readership for this book, and I did, and I am doing. So the plan is working so far. I mean, could you say a little bit more about what sort of reaction you've been getting to the book from fantasy readers? Uh, well, from, I just, um, if nothing else, my, uh, Facebook page is filled up with people saying, I love this book. It's wonderful. And so on. So that's one thing. I my Facebook is full. Uh, my Facebook friends are uh, heavily tilted towards <laughs> fantasy and science fiction. Um, and, um, the reviews have been, uh, have been really great too. Uh, Gary Wolf, whom I'm sure you, whose name you know, I'm sure, uh, reviewed it for the Chicago Tribune very uh, positively. And Liz Hand, who's another you know, major person in fantasy and science fiction, wrote a L.A. Times review. It was like a uh, review of my whole career that was pretty uh, uh, long, and uh, I was very impressed with it. And uh, Michael Durda, who is a reviewer of all kinds of books for the Washington Post and has been for since the Middle Ages. Um, he uh, also has a particular soft spot for fantasy and science fiction. And he reviewed it very positively, too. So um, I think my my uh, my bargain here is working out. <laughs> I guess I'll also just mention for listeners that um, John Joseph Adams, who's our producer, is you know, well-known. Joseph Adams was another one who really, really wanted to write. In fact, he was, he was very sorry that he couldn't get the book because he couldn't get his publishers to, to, to step up. Yeah, but so, yeah, so John has an imprint at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and so he read this in draft, and he told me it was one of the best books he's ever read. So Yes, he has been. I have heard him. He has said similar things to me. So, uh, you know, he was the other one, but somehow I, I, he couldn't get Houghton Mifflin to uh, step up. I don't know. You'd have to ask him the story. Yeah. And I'll just say, I mean, I, I just... I'm in awe of this book. I mean, just as a you know, as someone who writes fiction myself, I'm just so impressed that you know, it's just such a it's just such a amazing accomplishment. Just the, the just how just good it is in so many ways. Well, thank you. Um, and just like the the research, as you were mentioning, I mean, it just seems like it must have been intense. Um, and I was wondering, could you talk about actually? Um, this book incorporates a lot of different folklores and sort of pre-existing um, histories and stories and things, it seems. Could you talk a little bit about which things you were drawing on? Uh, well, for the, for, the, for the Celtic world, where Cart Darokli begins his life, uh, and, you know, that, that kind of Celtic folklore is, uh, is fairly general. Of course, I have uh, a great book um, of Celtic uh, Mythology, uh, which I can, um, that one I thought I did have here right in front of me, but I don't. There's one, there's a, a two guys who write um, about, have written the most thorough book about Celtic mythology, 
and that's what that's one I I uh, drew upon uh, for my book. I can't now. I don't yeah, maybe, maybe I should have warned you ahead of time. I was going to ask you about all your uh, research. Yeah, yeah, I could have assembled. All these. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you a note, and you can attach it as a uh, <laughs> uh, as a note. Um, yes, that was. But I did. I researched Celtic mythology, and which I had been had read about a lot in the past for other projects that I never actually uh, finished or be really even began on. But I was interested in it very much. Um, Actually, let me just ask you on that subject. Um, I, I noticed there was this um, there was a line about the cauldron that can bring warriors back to life, which of course makes me think of Lloyd Alexander. Um, well, it's a it's a it's a uh, standard piece of Celtic mythology. Yes, no, that that's I didn't make that up, and uh, neither did he. It's it's a part of Celtic mythology that there was such a cauldron, and apparently it uh, they even knew where it was. It was in Britain. Uh, but if you went over to then nobody ever managed to find it, I don't think. But it was supposed to be in Britain, and all the a lot of Celtic uh, tales are told about it. Um, so yeah, no, I didn't make that up. How about the... there was a lot of things that I didn't that I that might you might think that I had made up, but that I didn't. Well, well, actually, I have a whole a whole list here of of things that I was kind of curious about. So there's the hap- the Happy Valley, the most precious thing, the Isles of the Blessed, the Paradise of the Birds, the Fortunate Isles, the Small Ugly People, and the Sky Gate. Well, <laughs> okay, uh, of that list, I think uh, I, I think they are all came out of research. The only one that the the one that I gave a special name to the most precious thing that was just well that's just my name for that thing of immortality i suppose i'm sure you caught when those when the most precious thing is talking to dar oakley in the other world when dar oakley is trying to steal the the most precious thing from uh from foxcap who was supposed to be the one who got it the uh most precious thing tells him the story of gilgamesh going down into the river, into the sea, and, and finding the plant that gives immortality. He, the, the most precious thing, who is nothing now, he's, he continually talked about as nothing, tells the story. So there's Gilgamesh. So I threw that in as one of the past adventures of this <laughs> thing that you know can grant you immortal life. And when Dar Oakley hides the uh, most precious thing in a rook in the root of a tree, and then and makes a dag with his beak on the tree to make to, so he'll remember which tree it is, uh, and then then goes away and gets fox cap and they go back together to find it. And every tree, every tree that they look at is the same tree, and every tree has a mark of it on its beak. That comes from an old Irish folktale about finding the leprechaun and forcing him to tell you where his gold is buried, and he says it's buried under this tree, and the, and the, and the kid has to go home, wants to go home and get a big bucket so he can carry home all the gold, and then he wraps his scarf around the tree and goes home to get the bucket, and he comes back, every tree in the forest has a red scarf tied around it. Hmm. I, 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 saw, I saw a Saturday morning cartoon with that premise, so that's where I'm familiar with it. <laughs> it's very old. <laughs> always works. One of those that always works. Um, so that's the most precious thing, but the name itself was just something I made up myself mm-hmm. for that use, but everybody knows what it is. What were the other ones? The, the, the Happy Valley, the Isles the of the Happy Blessed? Happy Valley is, again, it, it, that in, in, of course, as Fox Cap uses the term, is, is sarcastic. Uh, it's not happy. 
It's a land of death. And she makes, has to make clear to Dar Oakley. I mean, he says, well, people must enjoy coming here. You're fighting all day, feasting all night, you know, get killed, get up again. And she says, no, it's not. Don't say that. It's not happy. They don't want to come here. So even though even the ones who are great in the world don't want to come here. So the Happy Valley is kind of sarcasm. But that one I made up myself, too, you know, Yeah. as a term. The Isles of the Blessed is uh, is very common in Celtic mythology. The lands lands to the west in the Celtic world uh, are very important, partly because some of them, at least up in the north, could be reached by competent sailors. Uh, even back in the fifth um, and fourth and third centuries, they were they were making it up to these uh, outlying islands up there and of course the northern peoples were coming down too and seeing them and they knew that there were there were others to the west somehow the west was a was a land of of uh goodness in celtic mythology um and it was always imagined that out there there were these um islands where anything could happen and those are in the stories of brendan who supposedly sailed or is the story is that he sailed across uh, the Atlantic and came to these islands in the West. Um, nobody is sure that he ever actually did. Nobody even is even sure that any such voyage was attempted. It's, it might be purely legendary. And it is what is certain is that there was a St. Brendan, but the story of St. Brendan's travels is hundreds of years uh, later than his own life. So it's a compilation of of uh, fabulous tales. And the longer, of course, <laughs> as with all saint stories, the farther away you get from it, the more amazing the story gets, which is what I tried to do in the book. I don't know if you noticed, but toward the, when it's recounted, Brendan's journey is recounted. Uh, it seems the th- things they come upon the first time around when Dyer Oakley takes the journey are sort of realistic places. I mean, they come upon a sort of volcanic mountain and they come upon various different lands. But when the story is finally told, all of those places have become magical and, and amazing and uh, unreal. Yeah, yeah. So that's like, so in the book, there's the characters Foxcap and Brother. And they kind of, if I, had, if I have this right, they kind of become saints, right? And so the stories yes, of the... Right, yes, right. Right, Foxcat becomes a saint, and so does the singer, though you don't hear, hear less about him. Yeah, yes, Foxcat. Well, that happened a lot. I mean, that the stories about um, Celtic heroes who either who mostly didn't exist. I mean, they were folktale characters themselves. Some of them were real enough, but over time, after the, when the Christian uh, world was built by these wandering monks to start with and then attached to Rome and so on. A lot of these um, uh, old Celtic heroes and uh, figures be turned into Christian saints. Um, it's, a, it's a marvelous kind of thing that happens. Um, one of the most amazing one is a French story about St. Guinefort. I don't know if you've ever heard of St. Guinefort, but uh, St. Guinefort was a dog. <laughs> There was an old Roman story of this couple who left home for on a journey uh, and left their dog in charge of their baby who was in a crib. 
And while they were gone, this huge snake came in and threatened the baby. And the dog chased the snake out and chased it into the forest, had a mighty struggle with the snake and uh, killed the snake and then came back and sat down beside the baby to guard it. Okay, And the parents can come home. And they see the baby in his crib asleep, and the dog sitting next to him with blood all over his mouth. And so the, the wife screams, and they say the dog has attacked the baby. The husband pulls his sword without even checking to see if the baby is alive and kills the dog. And only then do they go out, and they realize there's the dead snake, and the baby's still alive, and it was they made a terrible mistake. So they bury the dog and put up a monument to him, talking about what a wonderful dog he'd been, and so on and so on. Something like 500 years more later, this dog has become a saint, that a, a protectress or a protector of babies. And there's a shrine and, and a tr- special tree. Maybe there's, there's supposed to be the tree where they buried the dog. I don't know. But there's a tree where women used to take their babies to see if they couldn't, if they, especially if they were sickly. And a spring, an ice-cold spring that, that rose near where this uh, tree was. And the women would take their sickly babies and dunk them in this cold spring and hold them down in the water. And if they could, you know, if Swank Gunnifort was kind, they'd flourish. They'd come out and they'd be okay, they'd flourish. But if they weren't, they'd die. And they could be buried there and everybody would be sort of satisfied with that. It was almost sort of like, you know, (laughs) a way of taking care of babies that weren't going to thrive, that were going to die, without really feeling like you killed them. You'd somehow given them over to St. Gwynefort to take care of. Wow. Is that amazing? Yeah. How about the Anna Kuhn character? Is that a historical person? No, no. None of them are historical persons. They don't know. There's, there's, there's nobody in the story who is not made up. Could you talk about how you developed the, the Anna Kuhn character? She's sort of a medium around the time of the Civil War. Yes, yes, she is. Well, I told you, I read this, I read this book. Um, again, I can't remember the guy's name. Um, I'm very old, you know. One of the things you can't remember his name. <laughs> Even ones you know well, you can't remember. But um, I read it. It was a really fine book about... Um, about spiritualism in the just preceding and then following the Civil War, um, and this thing that went on in the 1840s and so on, uh, where there was a lot of women who were walking in their sleep, and or lying awake all night and talking and kind of preaching in kind of religious language, and then sort of falling asleep at dawn, and when they woke up, couldn't remember any of it. And they were famous, and they were written about, and you could, and they were all kind of regard. They were generally regarded as somehow blessed or um, uh, uh, in touch with God in some way. And so I, I said, "That's a great idea." And because in the various realms of the dead that I talk about, the one that Nana Kuhn is in touch with is different from any of the others. It's not one where you can visit. It's the other side. You have to die to go there. So, um, uh, it, those women who uh, were these sort of sleep talkers and sleepwalkers in the 1840s and 1850s are one part of a trend that worked its way through the Civil War and beyond up until 
you know, it started to fade away in the 20th century, that are actually part of the major origins of uh, spiritualism. That is to say, that kind of belief that the dead are in a place that we can't uh, reach alive, but from whom we can uh, get messages and speak and understand and hear their voices especially, especially hear their voices. A lot of it was about hearing uh, what they said. And then since Anna Kuhn is blind, that's how she does it. She hears voices. And she knows she knows she's hearing the voices of people who are dead. And um, there, it was much influenced by the religion, religious um, writings of Emanuel Swedenborg, who's now kind of forgotten uh, a lot. But he was enormously influential in the early 19th century. This Swedish uh, guy who had all these elaborate visions of what it's like um, to be dead and what's, what it's going to be like for us on uh, when we go to heaven, and that really, the real world is heaven, not earth. Earth is kind of um, an illusion, in a way. It's not really real. We're going to die, and we're going to come, if we, if we um, have lived good lives, we'll come into a world that is almost exactly the same as this world we're in, but much better. <laughs> much more wonderful, much uh, more gratifying, where we can live and we can then, in that realm, we can go on to higher and higher um, realms of possibility, getting closer and closer to God. And the angels, we we will be angels. Angels are dead people in Swedenborg's uh, imagination. Um, and they're not in standard Christian theology, of course. They're, you know, angels are created by God from before there were people. But to Swedenborg, the angels are dead people. They're spirits of dead people that have grown more and more powerful and beautiful and wonderful. I mean, it seems like that that's not your conception of the afterlife, though. At least as I read it in this book, it seems a lot spookier and like a place where the <laughs> rug is always being pulled out from under you. Yes, right. Yes, that's that's right. No, I didn't. I wanted the I wanted the other world to be as ambiguous as I could make it. I mean, it has to be. I think in order to be convincing. It can't just be a parallel world that's like nothing but its own rules. It's got to have a kind of uh, quality of non-existence at the same time as you're positing that the characters go there and meet people and so on. Um, it has to have an ambiguity. It has to have a, a way of, of vanishing on you, uh, either for good or bad, um, so yeah, no, no, no. I'm not a Swedenborgian, and neither are neither is Anna. Though she does picture the the, the other world to which her husband and uh, her husband's brother have died and gone to, or are on their way to, as a good world, as a better world, a better place, as they always said in the 19th century. He's in a better place. I, I mean, would you say that your conception of the afterlife, are you drawing that from any particular religious tradition or uh, literary? No, I'm drawing it, I, well, I'm trying to draw it from all of them. I mean, the 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 hell or purgatory that the brother goes to is, I mean, that, that is talked about a lot. There's several accounts of saints who went down into these other worlds via, sometimes via a dream, but sometimes via these holes in the ground. That they go down into, and that leads you down into this realm in which you're supposed to, um, you know, make it to the other realm, and then see if you can safely make it out again. This is really this was really a 
Celtic Christian practice, believe it or not. In fact, it was a Greek one, too. The Greeks had, had uh, some certain places where you went down into, spent time down in a uh, uh, sort of cave or hole in the ground and tried to uh, stay there for a night or longer. And then when you got out, you would report on all that you saw, which, of course, <laughs> if you're shut up in a dark hole in the ground, you probably have some stuff to talk about when you get <laughs> out. Uh, but the uh, the the purgatories or uh, other worlds that these the Celtic saints uh, were in were were exactly like the one I described. Had these all these demons that would torment you and judgments that went on and so on. So I didn't make up any of that part, except that mine is my own. And it's the same with uh, the uh, spiritualist uh, realm of the dead that Anna Kuhn talks about. Um, it's uh, that was the way they they thought about it. That that uh, in fact, I think that in the 19th century, in the late 19th century, hell kind of disappeared somehow. That uh, people died, especially um, maybe I don't know, maybe horribly bad people had some sort of punishment in the afterlife. But I don't think they talked that nearly so much about hell in the 1840s, 50s, 60s as they did later on. Maybe because so many people had died in the war that they just couldn't conceive of them uh, filling up hell. That just was too horrible to think of. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I mentioned to you that I also read Totalitopia, and there's this story, This Is Our Town, about a character growing up in sort of a Catholic childhood. Yes, right. And I, I was wondering how autobiographical that was. The, the, the thing that really struck me is the... Um, the priest or, or somebody says uh, about going out on Halloween that you got, that the kids have to watch out because there are real demons out on Halloween who might steal your soul if you're not careful. <laughs> well, I grew up Catholic in about that same period, but that's not autobiographical in any real sense. It actually is, however, based on a, a children's book, a children's a school book, Catholic school book called This Is Our Town. I have it in my hand right now. Um, and it's, you know, standard. I don't know if you, you're probably too young to have had these kind of readers when you were a kid that had these stories about little kids and big type and easy to read and stuff like that. The Catholic school readers, of which this is one, always also had stories of saints and, you know, stories about uh, um, Catholic practice and so on. But a lot of it is just stories about these kids in this little town. The whole story of, uh, I, th I think that it was written about uh, even though it was written by a nun, according to the the book, I think the story is based on somewhere actual because there's a whole that whole elaborate story of the flood. It's much longer in the book than it is in, in my version. Now, I changed a lot of details. There are no there's no guardian angels. In the book. <laughs> not not that anybody not that anybody talks to. I mean, there are you know guardian angels were were a standard feature of Catholic belief when I was a kid. I, I mean, were you afraid of demons? Like, did you have that no, sort of... No, I just no, I just thought that was a wonderful thing to be able to do. And I wanted it... The, the great thing about Halloween, uh, which I was... I mean, I, everybody loves Halloween. But in Christian practice, it is the case that the, that is Hallows, All Hallows' Eve. That is the e, the day before All, All Saints' Day. And on All Saints' Day, it is... In Catholic practice, you can go to church and say a set of specific prayers and release people 
from purgatory, same purgatory <laughs> that the brother was in. Uh, and they get to go to heaven. Get their punishment's over and they get to go to heaven. Um, and so that's what this little the little girl does. And she hopes that her Uncle Winnie somehow made it to heaven and she hopes that the little boy that she saw as a ghost, because the ghosts can't come from heaven and they can't get out of hell. So they must be these um, spirits that are half in and half out that somehow they're not decided on yet. Well, that's, that's interesting that you mentioned this idea of releasing people from purgatory into heaven in context of um, one of the other pieces in this book, which was about um, Russian cosmism, because oh, it's sort of a, a sort of technological version of that same idea almost. Right, it is. It is. You're right. You're right. Yes, those, those guys were uh, amazing, really amazing. I, I, I felt like I had made them up. <laughs> But I hadn't. It was it was quite factual, uh, and I didn't even get to some of the craziest stuff. So yeah, but, yeah. but yeah, but so so one of these guys, he had this idea, and you went to a conference about this. You say, but but yeah, basically, but, he had this idea that if we conceive of time space as one unified thing, that maybe it's theoretically possible to retrieve all the information from the past. In which case, and this is a lot of ifs here, but in which case, maybe it's possible to reconstruct. The consciousness of anyone who's ever lived, and uh, and that should be really the project of humanity should be to try to achieve immortality and then rescue everyone who ever lived, rescue their mind information. Right. That philosopher said, the, the, "Our ancestors brought us to life, gave us life. We have to give life back to them." Which means all the people that are buried on Earth, but also the ones who have somehow been blown away into you know the dust of the their bodies or whatever has been over thousands of years been blown away into outer space we have to go out and rescue all those and identify each one and put them all back together again this guy was has still an enormous reputation in russia as a seer as a saint as a mystic not as as somebody whose plans you would actually follow but uh he is highly respected still very weird. Yeah, no, I like it because he's not thinking small there. You know, no. I like the. <laughs> no. No, no, he's not. And I think that the reason, that one of the reasons that this that that kind of cosmism is appealing to a certain class of people who are thinking now about AI and uh, quantum s- stuff, because it does seem to resemble it. I mean, the idea that you can uh, reassemble a consciousness in some way. Uh, I mean, a lot of people are thinking about uh, consciousness in that way, thinking that you're going to get it into some sort of digital form or uh, so that it can be reproduced endlessly and don't doesn't ever have to die. And it can go out into outer space for billions of miles because, you know, it's just data. Um, you can see why the, the two things would, would attract uh, one another. And they do, apparently. Yeah, and the guy's name, I have it here, is Nikolai Fedor- uh, Fedorovich Fedorov. Fedorov, yes, right. Nikolai Fedorov, right. Yep, that's him. And an amazing person. He was a uh, saintly guy, apparently. He worked all his life in this one little library and um, uh, never kept, took a salary if he didn't have to. Or what he, when he did take a little salary, he'd give it away to poor people. He wore the same clothes for years and years and years. And the story is, uh, didn't have a bed. He slept on a humpbacked trunk. 
Now, how you can sleep on a humpback's trunk? I have no idea. Once you roll off, <laughs> I just, I, it was so mysterious to me. But I read it in more than one source. He slept on a humpback trunk. Maybe, maybe you just get you just get used to it after a while. I guess, I guess so. I don't know. <laughs> but he was he was so highly and he um, he never published anything. It was only at the end of his life that some of his followers who thought he was this sort of saintly, amazing, mystic figure with these huge ideas assembled a bunch of his writings and published them. And he was very angry with them for having published them. I don't know why he thought, I mean, maybe he thought that the humans he taught would carry his his ideas forth all by themselves. But I don't know. Hmm. But I mean, just this whole project of making everyone who's ever existed immortal kind of raises the issue that, and this comes up in Ka too, is, uh, is there such a thing as too much life? Yes, right. <laughs> right. Yes. Well, that's one of the reasons why these, why these afterlifes are so ambiguous too, you know, um, that, that book about the, uh, called the dominion of the dead, um, is very clear that one of the reasons we, uh, do what we do with dead people. We mourn them, we carry on, we cry, we weep, uh, and then we uh, carry them to these graves and put them in the graves and cover them up and put stones over them. We have to get rid of them. We ha- we, they can't share anymore in our life. We have to put them where they no longer uh, can have a part or we'll never get our, our lives, our own lives built. He says we bury them uh, in order to... Uh, put them away from us and we mourn them in order to bury them in ourselves where they can rest we put them at rest in ourselves by our mourning for them the dead just um, have to be in some way both excluded and remain with us at the same time which is a really kind of an idea of a sort that interests me a lot to think about how that would work I mean I the, the 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 two the Native American story when the when the when the man whose brother was killed on the on the trail by the people who captured them he's that's what he's doing he says he has become one of the people who captured him through this strange Native American process which is also exactly true and does happen I didn't make it up but he has to bury his brother and cover him up and say okay now you rest. You can't be with me anymore. He's not even talking that the brother's language anymore because he has adopted this other other people's language and ways. I mean, see, see, I feel like I would be okay with immortality. I mean, and I, I feel like <laughs> that the people will say, I, I feel like because it's so, um, you know, uh, hypothetical that people will try to come up with uh, way, reasons why death is good. They'll say, oh, well, the transitory nature of life is what makes life meaningful and so on. But I feel like if everyone were immortal, nobody would be saying, you know, there, or, there would be a small minority who would be expressing that opinion, you know. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. It's, it, uh, I can see your point. I have always thought that I wouldn't necessarily want to go on living more life if I could just stay in possession with this life that I've got and not have to give it up and die. No, no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about, yeah, temporal immortality, you know. And people, will, and people will, yeah, and people will say, I mean, um, you know, once you just get bored after a while. And, but that just seems like maybe, I mean, if we're talking about uh, 
quantum resurrection of the dead and all this kind of stuff. I mean, that might just be another engineering problem to be solved. I mean, you can probably take a drug that would make you more interested in being alive or something, you know? Yeah, right. Well, you could also probably take a drug that would that would cause you to feel like you had lived forever. <laughs> it could slow down your time far enough, you know, so that uh, one second appeared to you as like, you know, a million years or whatever. Yeah, that's a really you interesting know, idea. Become immortal yeah. within within uh, the, your your own lifespan. You've lived forever. Yeah, that's I, I like that. <laughs> yeah, so you should you should be a science fiction writer. The ideas like that. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the thing about science fiction is that um, the ideas are, you know, come to everybody. All kinds of great ideas come to everybody. But then you have to actually, you know, make up people and language and dialogue and <laughs> scenes. And, yeah, that's, that's the tricky. That's the trick right there. That's the tricky part, yeah. Right. Mm. It has to be 100 pages long. Or something, <laughs> you, know. you can't can't stop. <laughs> This has been a problem. Well, and there's this other article in, in Totalitopia where you talk about one of the really tricky parts about trying to write science fiction is how nobody seems to be able to predict the future with any degree of accuracy at all. Right. Yes, right. Right, yes. That that, that was, I mean, that's deliberately paradoxical, of course. Uh, I don't know. Maybe some people have been more successful than others about predicting the future. But in, in there is a um, sort of permanent wall or unbreachable wall between us and what is to come. You can make all kinds of guesses about it. And of course, you can make some successful guesses about it, but you can't actually predict a future world. There's just too many random variables that are going to happen between now and then. And things that you think you look at and you say, it is certain that this is going to be, this is going to continue. How could this possibly stop? But of course it does and has done in, in the past more than once. Um, I remember speaking of Catholics and Catholic churches. Um, have you read the Glass Bead Game by uh, um, Hermann Hesse? I have not, no. Hermann Hesse was a German writer in the 1930s, 20s and 30s. Um, he wrote uh, several books about oddly unreal topics. Uh, he wrote a life of uh, Siddhartha, which is about the Buddha growing up. And his book, The Glass Bead Game, is set like 500 years in the future after many, many uh, troubles have, have uh, occurred and wars and so on and bad societies coming and going. And finally, gets reestablished and what has persisted through all of it is the Catholic Church, exactly as it is. Now, as exactly as it was in the 1930s, not as it is now. It's completely, it's completely different now than it was in the 1930s. So that even an, an, uh, um, an institution like the Catholic Church, which seems on the face of it to be unchangeable, and which continually claims to be unchangeable and always has, if you, were, if you sat down in 1950 and said the church will be the same, every, all the things are going to change, but the church will be the same, um, and it, just, it, it was the thing that changed. Other things stayed, stayed the same, but the church changed. <laughs> So it just it's a it's a paradoxical relation to time to try to imagine the future, which I I enjoyed. Well, I mean, you you suggest in this essay, I'm not sure if how facetious you're being, but that the best way to predict the future would just be to take what science fiction writers are predicting and assume the exact opposite will happen. Right, right, right. 
That's right. Well, one of the things that, that you can predict the opposite of is that in 1950s science fiction, they were always predicting, you know, we, we'd be, you know, colonizing Mars. We'd be uh, getting out to farther planets around distant suns, and we have no closer to that than we were in 1950. So you say, nope, not going to happen, and eventually it's going to be forgotten about as an enterprise. It's just too hard. A lot, a lot of this, a lot of people that I read now are saying it's it is going to be given up as an enterprise. The idea, not necessarily going to Mars, because that's kind of close enough and it's sort of interesting. Um, but uh, colonizing Mars, somehow I doubt it. And getting to planets around other suns, light years away, and colonizing them. I suppose you could project it into the million year frame, and who knows? That doesn't even, you know. Anybody can think about that one. Pretend anything you want about that one. If you're trying to predict the next, say, 100 years, I doubt it very much. I mean, in a, an episode a year or two ago, I interviewed a, a, a guy about a – he wrote a biography of Frederick Paul. And he was talking about how Asimov and Paul wrote a book. I think it was called Our Angry Earth, something like that, about how global warming was going to be a huge issue. And this was even before Rachel Carson. And uh-huh. that does seem to be one that really, you know – it's a pretty accurate prediction. <laughs> okay, that's one. <laughs> um, but in, and in a way, the uh, the uh, big scare of my young years in the fifties and sixties um, was overpopulation, which that was you know there's lots and lots of stories, uh, science fiction stories about overpopulation. Ruining the world. Stand on Zanzibar uh, is one of them, and uh, and it didn't happen between then and now. In fact, the, the population of the United States is almost stable. We're almost not reaching population replacement numbers. Now, the the overall population, India and China and so on, are still you know filling up and producing more and more and more, but they are also uh, trying very hard to to stop it. And uh, 50 years after um, the population bomb came out, which was in the 1960s, the, the book that predicted was we were all going to be overwhelmed by too many people in 50 years, and we're not overwhelmed by too many people. Uh, in fact, like I say, in certain uh, highly technological and advanced societies, Europe and, and the United States, Population is going down, not up, which is, you know, um, not too surprising, really, when you think about it. Yeah. Actually, we, we did an episode on overpopulation in science fiction just a couple episodes ago. So if anyone oh, yeah? missed that and you want to hear, I have a lot more to say about this, but you can, I don't want to re- repeat what I said there. Um, but I did want to ask you sort of on that topic, I guess, one of the things you say in that essay is that you say that in the future, that there will be basically the same amount of pain and insufficiency as any human world at any time. Yeah. And I was wondering if you if you know this. There's a book by Steven Pinker that came out of within the past few years where he basically is called The Better Angels, Angels of Our Nature. Oh, yeah. I read about it. I read reviews of it. I haven't read the book. But the thesis of it basically is that your chance of dying violently um, from 100,000 years ago or something to now has basically been a steady downward uh, yeah. trend. <laughs> yes, but you know what? If you say, "All right, my chances of dying violently have gone down," but um, what about my chances of uh, living 
20 years uh, with dementia. That's gone way, way up. So uh, you have to balance the two of them. People, there's, you have a 50% chance, I was just reading, or almost a 50% chance, if you get to 85, of getting Alzheimer's. Do you know how many people got Alzheimer's in the old days? Well, because they, well, they didn't they live long enough. They didn't live that long. <laughs> that long. So every age, I think, has, uh, has pains that no other age has got. And um, uh, you, you, if you live long enough, you see uh, the world of your... Of your uh, it, this never happened before. The world can be different to you, and you can seem a stranger in it um, just by growing from 15 to 75. And the loss you feel about that and the confusion and bafflement you sometimes feel uh, can be really uh, terrible. Um, and people didn't feel that way. Of course, the world could change in a minute. The Vikings could, you know, overwhelm your island and kill everybody. <laughs> and, or the Christians could come in and make everybody a Christian and, you know, tear down all the statues of your old gods. I don't mean that it never happened. But it seems to be in a particular kind of way now that um, uh, is new and replaces some of the old pains with and old griefs with new ones. I mean, who could have thought of who could have thought? I mean, he could say that the violent the, the amount of people dying of violence is lesser, person by person. But what, do you add in the six million people who died in the Holocaust? The 50 million people who died in the Soviet Union because of what the Soviet, what the, how the Soviet project was was pursued. Got to add them in too, you know. Well, I mean, what do you think then about the, just the idea of progress? Is that just an illusion, or I mean, I know you teach a class on utopias at Yale. Do you have? Yeah, I do. Like, what do you think about the idea of a better future? Well, I think there was the, when I read that I wrote that article. It was written for a Lapham's Quarterly, and. Uh, Lewis Lapp was a very smart guy, and uh, he read that essay that you read, and in there, there's this little tiny utopian projection, uh, how it's all going to be one world in the future, and uh, there's going to be a command economy that satisfies everybody because it'll all be you know, digitized, and uh, everybody will get about what they want. There might not be a big surplus, but everybody will be satisfied, and there will be no wars, and so on and so on. And uh, Louis Lapham, his uh, uh, editor, his assistant editor, told me that Louis read this little essay and then asked the guy, says, does he really believe this? <laughs> and uh, um, I mean, I don't know if I do or not. I, I mean, I think that the point of that essay was the projection of these imagined futures is a human constant and has become much more of a human constant uh, in the last 100 years or so, 150, 200 years. And they are works of the human imagination. It's what they are. And they are, and the ones that fail are the ones that insist that this is either what is going to happen or what must happen. Those are the ones that, uh, you know, end up on the trash heap of history. Uh, it's the ones that are ex pure expressions of human possibility or what we would like to be 
human possibilities. Those are the ones that survive, and they can't be enacted. Uh, they just are beautiful dreams. I, I mean, could you and say they're encouraging? But because we like to dream. I mean, could you say a little bit more about you described this this um, proposal in this essay as as a quote socialist utopia with a world government, a distribution system like Amazon's, but owned by the world? Could you say yeah. just uh, expand on that? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't know how it's going to work. I, I mean, I did not set out. I mean, here's the thing: I wrote the essay in order to say that you know, utopia is kind of a, uh, um, a kind of a, a, a dream. Projecting the future is kind of uh, uh, an illusion, and utopia, along with it, is sort of, uh, and so is dystopia, for that matter. Uh, they're both illusions because we can't know the future. So when I pr propose my own, to that's what it's called, you know, totalitopia. It's a, it's a totalitarian utopia. <laughs> that's why it's called that. Um, and uh, uh, I imagine that people will just finally come to their senses and all agree to stop all this fighting and, and uh, fighting over both resources and ideologies and we will all understand that we are all, all men are brothers. That is to say, all siblings are persons. And we will understand that if we just uh, act reasonably and rationally, we can actually satisfy. The, the, the technology exists to make a good life, or provide the means for a good life for everybody on the planet. Right. And uh, so I, do I believe that? I don't know. Well, I, I thought it was a really interesting... Um, idea because I mean, like to if if you compare three different possibilities, right? A command economy with bad people in charge, a market economy, or a command economy with good people in charge. The yeah. obviously the command economy with bad people in charge is bad. Like you know, we can yeah. dismiss that one. But so then yeah. you're comparing the command economy with good people in charge versus the market economy. And the problem that the command economy has is that the people in charge don't have enough information to make good decisions compared to a market because the market is providing so much more information all the time to everyone about who needs what where. But you say, like, if we had good enough information processing, right, um, yeah. you can imagine something like in M. Banks's culture series, you could uh -huh. maybe have a command economy, like a high-tech command economy that actually outperformed yeah. a market economy. I, absolutely. I mean, hi, I, what, what, else, what else are we trending toward with all this knowledge that's collected in, with, in Facebook and in Amazon and Google and all that kind of stuff? It's all there, ready to go. All we have to do is agree to, to, uh, to you know, organize it in such a way that it... Uh, is owned by everybody and not by Jeff Bezos and <laughs> those guys. And uh, uh, turned into, I mean, it would be like what was what was desired about industrial economies in the, in the, at the end of the 19th century or in the early 20th century. They wanted them taken over in the same way. And instead of instead of being ways to to make profits for a small number of people, you would devote the the uh, the fantastic resources of industrial capitalism, you would instead devote it to uh, making good life for everybody, and everybody would join in on it, and everybody had to have a say in it. That wasn't a you know crazy dream. Uh, the idea of anarcho-syndicalism, the idea that somehow the, that um, the, the industrial society would be sort of organized around these workplaces, and they would be, there would be uh, groups and conferences of people that would join with other conferences, and there'd be no more nation states. It would just be these this joining together of disparate uh, lo loci, I guess you'd call it, of these huge industrial enterprises. 
that are run by the workers themselves, not uh, as a, uh, a state giving orders or making laws, but just as a sensible organization of um, of uh, thinking people, like unions. And we didn't do that, <laughs> and we're not going to do totalitopia either. But to say that it's like just silly to think that way, you know, it's a little bit like, really, what you were asking me about about um, the other world, the wars of the dead that I thought of. They're ambiguous. They tend to vanish if you look too closely at them. They tend to not quite provide what they seem like they're going to provide. They provide something like it, but not really. Um, that's the way I see utopia, too, in the same way. You present a vision, and people can say, oh, yeah, really? That's really, I mean, I can imagine that being actually the case. And then you think about it for a while, and gradually it kind of catters like a dream. And, you know, you say, well, maybe not. You know, maybe human beings are just... You know, basically evil, and and then the and the problem is that he's got the wrong idea of human nature. My my kind of utopia and a lot of other utopias depend on people having a certain kind of human nature that they probably don't have. That is to say, people don't want power; they just want goodness. People don't want uh, more than they can ever use in their lifetime. All they really want is a sufficiency. Well, maybe not. Maybe we really are evil. Who knows? So. Yeah, well, that's that's cheerful. Um, actually, I mean, b- before we run out of time, I, by the way, there's a there's a wonderful book you might you might want to look for if you can find it. It's called Red Plenty, and it's by Francis Spufford, S P U F F O R D, and um, it's a, a novel in a way, but it's almost all about real people uh, in the Soviet Union in the seventies. And it was about the moment in which, if the, if the Soviet um, command structure had allowed it, uh, the Soviet technology uh, guys, people who were working in data management and uh, digital stuff and computers in the 70s, were on the point of figuring out how to run a command economy with data information. And they had the plans were getting clearer and clearer. And, but the society, of course, was in desperate trouble in the 70s. And eventually, uh, the leadership suppressed it. Said, no, we're not going to go that way. We're going to go the old way with all the big, you know, paper-bound books full of handwritten notes mm-hmm. <laughs> about how much bread and how much steel and how much, you know, pork fat and all that kind of thing. And it was like, you know, that was the end. Actually, that decision meant it was all over for the Soviet Union because the command economy was not working then and it was not going to work. It was going to work less and less well until it was bankrupt. Yeah, that's yeah, no, that's interesting. I'll, I'll check that out. There's actually, there's a line in Ka that recurs a couple times, where there is plenty, there is peace. I was wondering yeah, if that sort of... Right, yeah. <laughs> right. certainly applies to crows. I mean, <laughs> you know, you don't have to fight over that last little scrap of dead squirrel, you know. <laughs> Everybody's happier. Yeah. Okay, so I did, before we run out of time, I also kind of want to ask you about, um, you have this essay here about Paul Park's writing, yeah, and there's right. this there's this line about, um, you, you're talking about Philip Pullman, 
and you say uh, his narrative is as unsurprising and off the shelf as his world is imaginative and new. It progresses as does Tolkien's by steady alternation of scenes of threat, danger, discomfort, and ignorance, and scenes of warmth, relief, and intimations of resolution. Each scene is like a brick put in place in a growing edifice whose shape and reason come clearer and clearer to us. And that kind of seems like a good story to me. Um, <laughs> but you, you, you sort of compare it unfavorably with um, Paul Park's writing. Uh, well, I, no, it's not, that's not bad. It's, it's not a bad way to tell a story. It's just, I mean, I can remember reading, noticing this in Tolkien when I read it for the first time. And it was, the Tolkien books were just, you know, kind of entrancing in a way. And even though I kept resisting it because it had this really simplistic uh, style of organization, um, there's no doubt that they're uh, they're uh, absorbing and wonderful. Uh, but they do a kind of they kind of primitive that way as fiction, um, and probably what doesn't matter in a way uh, because that is so gratifying. It is gratifying to read that story where people are in trouble and it's cold and dark and, you know, there's threatening stuff around and uh, uh, you're in danger and sleeping out in the, in the dark and so on. And then suddenly nice people come and rescue you and it's warm and cozy and there's a fire and ale is drunk and so on. Tom Bombadil shows up. Okay, well, I'm not, I'm not down with Tom Bombadil, but I take your point. Well, nobody is, but I think it's okay. <laughs> Uh, that I mean that that is something that the reader can participate in viscerally uh, throughout, you know, if you're taken by the story. But it's also very simple. It's just like living as a baby, you know. Sometimes you're cold and hungry and and pissed off and yell a lot. And sometimes you're warm and happy and mommy is smiling and you're smiling back. But you know there are more complex ways of constructing uh, fictional universes. That's all. Well, but I mean, I like I like a kind of I like I am drawn like Paul like Paul Park is to that kind of complexity of possibility and also ambiguity. Is this a good scene? Is it? I mean, you know, instead of alternating good and bad, you just keep on producing things that are both good and bad, or bad with maybe good in them, or good that is maybe turning bad. Well, like you talk in Paul Park's series, you see, you, you mentioned that you say that there's this long episode that you say quote effectually comes to nothing. And is that, um, I don't know, does sophisticated fiction need sections where you, the reader wonders, like, well, what was the point of that? Or like, <laughs> Well, I don't know. I think, I think that I'm not sure. When I read the book, I didn't think, what, uh, what was the point of that? When I read that, that boxing scene, I was just so uh, surprised by it and swept up in it. It wouldn't have occurred to me. I just went on to the next thing. You know, I didn't say that. What was the point of that? Like, looking back, I can say uh, that's an odd thing for a fiction of this kind to do. But it's not an odd kind of thing for a realistic, long novel by Saul Bellow or somebody to do. There's all kinds of things that come to nothing in realistic novels. Uh, especially deep thing, long kinds of uh, realistic modern novels. It's only in it's only in certain I mean in the kinds of stories denominated romance in the largest sense um, ought to have a more easily graspable structure and not wander off from it. Um, 
but my books do, and so do Paul Parks. And they stand by that to join up romance in all of its glory and all of its shortcomings to um, the kinds of realistic fictions that have been being made since the middle of the 19th century. Um, and they seem to have been parted entirely. And But I think that in books like mine, what I kind of hope for in books like mine, in books like Little Big and and in Engine Summer and the Egypt novels, is to somehow not lose that um, that connection that was, uh, or to return to the place where those two kinds of fictions departed from each other sort of <laughs> forever. Uh, and when I look at the, my uh, my reviews in Amazon, my Amazon reviews, sometimes I look through those and see how they're doing. And um, a lot of the reviews of Little Big say, uh, there's no story. I can't get into this book. There's no story in it. It's not, I don't go, I, nothing happens. It's just all these pages and pages and pages of description. And when I see reviews like that, I know the kind of books that that reviewer likes. <laughs> and I know to the excerpt, to pretty uh, clearly the uh, extent to which my book does not match that. Um, and I mean, you know, I, I don't, I don't mean to deprive anybody of, uh, of the pleasure of reading, uh, books where lots of things happen continuously and some are good and some are bad. I, I don't at all mean that, but, uh, I do to me, the attraction of trying to make something very large and complex, uh, rather than, uh, having that kind of simple structure. The simple structures can produce wonderful things. I'm, I'm, I mean, that... The other kinds of structures do, too. I mean, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, but it, it does seem like it puts a ceiling on your popularity. I mean, do you think that's just an inherent reality given the way that people's brains process information and the distribution of personality traits and so on? Or do you do you see, like, could there be a alternate world where a little big was like, like a Harry Potter or something? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. I really. It has taken me a very, very long time to understand that it's probably not. And uh, I mean, I'm a little bit better off than Paul Park, whose books sort of almost get people angry because they're <laughs> not shaped like ordinary books. But um, uh, no, I I, uh, I don't think that. It took me a long time to realize that even though the books that I was writing were intended to reach people at that kind of level, the kind of way that the the Tolkien's and the Pullman's and the uh, uh, Harry Potter's are trying to aim at people, it just wasn't going to happen. I just and it wasn't a, a choice of mine to really um, not do that and do something different instead, just for the you know for the hell of it. That's the way I think, and that's the way my fiction arises. It can't arise any differently than that. Um, I'm stuck with what I am <laughs> and the way I, the way I can conceive things. Um, I mean, in a way you can say that cause is a much simpler book in some ways than little big or than, than certainly than the Egypt books, which are another kind of big, you know, scale fantasy work of its own kind. Um, cause much simpler and much more straightforward and episodic and so on. So, um, 
maybe in my old age I am kind of drifting back toward uh, simpler kind of storytelling. But the funny thing is that writers, I don't think writers can choose these things. I really don't. I think that 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 your um, your nature as a writer is more fixed than you can actually uh, change it. Uh, it's not that easy to suddenly turn yourself. I mean, everybody, you think to yourself when you're a young writer, well, I'm, I can write. I'm, well, I know how to construct paragraphs. I know how to make uh, good sentences. I know how to tell stories. I ought to write, you know, something like Dan Brown or something like, you know, whatever, make lots of money. In fact, you can't. You can try, but your nature is going to prevent you <laughs> from actually doing that. Uh, you have to be Dan Brown in order to write that way, or you have to be somebody like Dan Brown anyway. And uh, I remember, I remember when I was first being a writer, thinking, well, all right, I published a book, uh, my first science fiction novel, um, and they bought another book. That's you know, now I'm a writer. So now what am I going to do? What should I do? How can I make a living doing this? And one of the things I conceived of doing was to write a roman a clef, you know, one of those things where it's a, a disguised story about famous people, but they're all, you know, have different names and stuff, but you've stolen all their adventures <laughs> from the real world. And I was going to write a roman a clef about uh, Leonard Bernstein, the conductor. I thought, this is great. This is, this is perfect. Because, you know, it's music, it's got Broadway in it, it's got famous people in it, it's got uh, opera, it's got Maria Callas, it's got, you know, Israel, it's been, you know, uh, there's a certain poll about uh, Jewish, big book, big books about famous Jewish people that, that was, at the time anyway, a big deal. I said, I've got it, this is great. And I, said, I started thinking about how I could write this, I didn't know anything about music. That was going to have to hold me up, but I can do research. I can figure <laughs> this out. And uh, so I, I actually wrote a few pages of it. And the trouble was, I, as, I looked at it, as I look at it now, that the pages that I started with, it began with a dream sequence. <laughs> 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 and I said, okay, well, you see, I don't think you're going to be able to do this. You're just going to get tied up in uh, in your own fictional possibilities and you know it's harder than you think to get out of them all, all i could probably do is parody i couldn't actually you have to have the sincerity to write those things with and if if you don't have the sincerity it's not gonna it's it's gonna come out um nobody will like it no matter how hard you try you'll tell they can tell yeah. I wanted to ask you, there's this uh, quote on the back of the book, on to the back of Totalitopia that sort of struck me where it says, Crowley has made his way out of the genre zoo, and all attempts to return him have so far proven unsuccessful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I think, I don't know, who said that? Uh, it's on the back of the book. I don't know if Terry Bisson wrote it or what. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I, 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 I never. I, I guess that's true. I mean, the first three novels I wrote were were, were certainly, you know, conceived and written and and uh, sold as, as standard science fiction novels. But after that, I never really wrote another one. I mean, uh, so I guess you could say I, I escaped at that point. But um, I, it doesn't seem like that 
to me, I mean, it seemed to me that uh, I may have gotten away from science fiction, but I didn't get away from what John Kluge calls fantastica at all, ever, not not down to the present. Every, all of my books have some element of of the magical and the impossible in it. Uh, and um, some of them are dominated by it, and some of them are uh, are just carry hints of it. Um, what do you what do you think about that genre zoo thing? Is that having been, I guess, in both worlds, is the fantasy and science fiction world more notably more zoo like than the literary world? Or uh, well, I I think I, it's not a zoo is wrong. Zoo. I mean, when you say this is a zoo, you usually mean something that's not anything like a zoo, which is a very orderly and peaceful place. <laughs> Uh, but when they, people say this is a zoo, they mean it's crazy chaos, and I don't think that, I don't think that's that's true of it at all. But the, certainly the the numbers of different kinds of impulses at work in the science fiction and fantasy uh, world uh, make it kind of a little bit chaotic. I've often thought that that I mean people used to come up to me at at, at uh, like science fiction and fantasy conventions, which I went to along with everybody else to you know make my name known and so on. And um, and to meet you know writers whose work I really admired, and every once in a while people would come up to me and say, "Oh, I'm so glad to meet you. You're one of my two favorite writers." And I learned over time not to ask who the other one. Was. <laughs> <laughs> and but it taught me something about the that what uh, the real deep fans of fantasy and science fiction um, are looking for in books and store and. Uh, stories is um, something that doesn't need to be a particularly um, well written or written with a kind of imaginative um, use of rhetoric and language. It just has to contain these elements that they're looking for. It's like, I mean, to be mean about it, this is kind of unkind. It's, it's like, you know, an alcoholic who is going to get the same kind of kick out of, you know, cheap bottle of vodka as a Chateau Lafitte 49, you know, uh, and that's what he's getting. And the other, the other qualities of it are nice, but not necessary. What's really necessary is that thrill that they get from, uh, this is my kind of book. This is my kind of thing. This is a realm I can lose myself in. And, um, so if that's the genre zoo, if that's what he, that, the quote refers to, then I guess I did get out of it, but in a certain sense, um, I lost a certain uh, population in doing that, which is I felt bad about. Um, and um, this book, Ka, is in a certain way uh, as close as I can come to recapturing that population. So it's a, I, to giving them their next fix? What? To giving them their next fix? Oh, their next fix. Oh, their next fix. I thought you said their next, their next sticks. I couldn't figure out. What you said. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't. I do not need to provide anybody with anything. Um, uh, this was a book I wanted to write anyway. But I also saw that in choosing. I mean, you know, I have a couple of different ideas I could choose, and uh, uh, in choosing this one, I knew that I was trying to uh, win back a readership that I seemed to have kind of lost. Uh, but at the same time, I wrote it exactly as I chose. I, mean, I I did not think while writing it, 
it would be better to write it this way in order to make it a fantasy novel than this way, which would make it some kind of modernist whatever. I did not think that ever. I just wrote it exactly the way I wanted it. So, um, it's, it's, uh, it was, that's part of the reason it was so much fun to write. Because <laughs> I knew that I was writing a fantasy novel and I could write anything and I was unconstrained by anything except my own imagination. But at the same time, I could write it exactly in the way that I wanted because I can't write any other way. Yeah, no, that all sounds great. I think it's great to be able to, you know, write the books that you want and uh, find uh, find the readers who are looking for those sorts of books. Yeah. And uh, we're actually pretty much out of time here. So do you just have anything else you want to mention? I saw that it mentions in here that maybe there's a little big TV show in the works. Is there anything you can say about upcoming projects or anything going on? I can't say anything about it. I mean, every... every uh author with a big book that tells a long complicated story and is kind of below a certain segment of the population is looking to get their thing turned into a TV series and so so am I but I, there's nothing at all concrete about it it's just uh, something that is um, I mean more than one person is interested in talking about it but it's very far from being actual uh, but it would be I think it would be a lot of fun yeah. if it happened uh you know, I I always wanted to write films, but that's so. Nope, nothing on that. And uh, as you can see by looking at it, Ka will never be made into a movie. <laughs> I sure hope. Anyway, <laughs> unless uh, I don't know, maybe maybe I don't know. The trouble with CGI crows is that you'd have to give them facial expressions, and whatever Dar Oakley can see in another another crow's eyes and faces and gestures and so on, they don't have very they're they're pretty inflexible faces, <laughs> so, so I don't know how you'd do it. But you know, if anybody yeah. wants to try, yeah, it would have to be a very like an avant-garde filmmaker with like a five hundred million dollar budget or something, and right, one of them, the studios, who's right. <laughs> really into crow sex and uh, uh, crows eating people and babies. <laughs> right, right, yep. That is, really hasn't. I haven't read a review yet that gets turned off by all the dead people eating. So far, <laughs> nobody has said, "Oh, what a wonderful book!" Except all that icky dead people eating. Nobody said that. We'll see how it goes on. <laughs> all right, great. So I think yes, yeah, so I think we'll wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with John Crowley, and again, this new book is called "Ka Dar Oakley in the Ruins of Emer." So, John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to John Crowley for joining us on the show. And as promised, here are the titles and authors of some of the books that John read while researching Ka. So we've got The Dominion of the Dead by Robert Pogue Harrison, This Republic of Suffering by Drew Gilpin Faust, Body and Soul by Robert Cox, The Celtic Heritage by Alwyn and Brinley Reese, Ravens in Winter and The Mind of the Raven by Berndt Heinrich, and In the Company of Crows and Ravens by John M. Marsleff and Tony Angel. So definitely go check those out. I also want to give a big thank you to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Ale Irene in Mexico and PJ Rop and Kaluru in the U.S. Ale Irene writes, This is an amazing podcast to get to know more about today's authors and personalities. I get a lot of ideas for books to read and series to watch. Thanks. Greetings from Monterey, Mexico. So big thanks again to Ale Irene for that great review. Special thanks as well to Holly Snowden, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. 
Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.